Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Capital Fatigue, a new political current events podcast. Since this is the first episode, I just wanted to tell you all what my vision for the podcast is and a little bit about myself, and just give you a little background on my education and my political journey. So to start off, I figured we'd talk about the podcast and what I want it to look like. Basically, for the podcast, I want this to be a review of political current events each week or bi-weekly, whichever my schedule allows. The topics for the show will be selected based on the headlines on the news sources or organizations, and then a brief synopsis will be given on each story or event. Then I will give my opinion on said event as honest as I can be. I do have colleagues across the political spectrum from one end to the other who may also appear as guests from time to time. I also want to try and keep the show about an hour in length. There may be times where it goes over or under slightly depending on how many political stories there are for that week that seem worth talking about, but for the most part, I plan to keep it about one hour. Now, as for my education background and political history... I hold both a bachelor's and master's degree in political science with a minor in American history. For the last six years, I've been enthralled with anything having to do with politics, mostly domestic and international politics that had to do with the United States, but also paying some close attention to the politics of the United Kingdom. I would say that my interest in politics came from the dramatic shift that I've noticed in how our government is run and the fact that bipartisanship seems to have gone by the wayside. We no longer have two parties working together for the betterment of the country, but instead we have two parties that are constantly with odds at each other, which has led to one with the majority controlling D.C., while the other campaigns and tries whatever tactics they can to hopefully gain back control of Congress so that they can have a turn at governing. This is the reason that the Founding Fathers, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, all warned us about political parties dividing the nation to the point that it could no longer stand. Now I just want to talk a little bit about my personal journey in politics and how I have shifted on the political spectrum, I'd say rather radically over the last 10 years. So at one point in my life, I was a member of the Democratic Party, and I did, for the most part, kind of blindly follow the talking points and stances that they had on certain issues. Uh, My first memory of politics were of Al Gore running for office, and what I remember mostly was his stance about climate change. I also remember not liking the Republicans very much. Based on the fact that the news media and the Democratic Party told me that the GOP were not good people, and the word conservative became synonymous with bad for me. When I heard the word conservative, I thought of people and a party that were just against change at all costs, and a party stuck in their ways, unwilling to change or adapt with the times. Now, if we fast forward to about 2008, when Barack Obama was the Democratic candidate for president, Uh, At this point, I was not old enough to vote yet, but we held mock elections in my school. And I'm not ashamed to say that I voted for him in that. I remember liking him more than Gore. I remember him being this young politician who promised my generation everything, pretty much. I remember the campaign during both the nomination and the presidency, his message of change. Change that to me at the time seemed like common sense change. Marriage equality. Sure, that made sense to me. Why shouldn't gay couples be allowed to marry each other? Now, this time I was not aware that I was gay yet, but in 2009 I would realize that I was, so the issue held a little more weight with me. Protecting the environment? Of course, we should protect our planet. I've always had a love and appreciation for nature. My father taught me to hunt and fish at a very young age, but he did also teach me the need for conservation, even if he did not know it at the time. 
He would say that we do not simply take an animal's life for sport. If we kill an animal, we need to eat it or use it in some way. And we never took more than one or two deer off our property that we'd hunt so that we could always have a population and keep it in check. I remember Obama talking about college and helping students with college debt. And as someone who'd be graduating high school and starting college during the Obama administration, it made sense to me that I should support him. I remember that during President Obama's first term, thinking he had not done much, but upon reflection, it was probably because he was hoping to get reelected for a second term. Now, I think it was about halfway through this second term that I began to notice a change in his actions and views of the Democratic Party as a whole. His stance on gun control and the Second Amendment became far more radicalized than I remember from the campaigns, even his first year in office. Now, of course, he was a Democrat, and most Democrats are against civilians owning firearms. It's just the way of the land. If you're a Democrat, you're against guns. If you're a Republican, you're for guns. But I don't remember his first term, him being as outspoken against guns as he was in his second term. Case in point, the UN Small Arms Treaty, which he did enter us into. His push for the Affordable Health Care Act during his second term, which left many with higher premiums and forced businesses that already had health care for their employees to actually not be able to afford it anymore, and thus people lost their health care. We were told we could keep our doctors. We were told our premiums would not go up. Well, both of those things were lies. Many Americans lost their health care. They could not keep their doctors, and premiums went through the roof. I know personally, my family, we were paying about $375 a month for a family of three, which covered dental, medical, hospital, prescription, eye care, pretty much everything that we needed as a family of three, because, well, after the Affordable Health Care Act, or Obamacare, as some like to call it, was passed, my family's premium doubled to almost $700 a month for a family of three. Then it went up again to $1,000, and my father then lost it as a supplement on Medicare. Now we are paying about $1,300 a month just for my mother to still be on the plan, and she has lost her dental and part of her eye coverage, and they're not covering routine blood work anymore on her health care because they say it's too expensive to cover. And this is all a result of Obamacare being passed. Now, I will say there were some good things that also came out of the Affordable Health Care Act. We had the issue of pre-existing conditions. So if a person had a pre-existing condition, health companies would be less likely to insure them. That was done away with with Obamacare. And if you had a pre-existing condition, you were guaranteed health care. You also had that if you were the age of 26 on a federal level now, you could stay on your parents' health care. Before, it was a state-level issue, which... Yes, you run into some Tenth Amendment issues there, but for the most part, it did more good than harm by allowing people to stay on their parents' health care a little bit longer. His stance on climate change and the environment changed radically from what I remember during his first term and running for office the first time. He entered the United States into the Parrot Climate Accords, which, like most deals with international politics, the United States footed the majority of the bill like we do for NATO and the United Nations and other trade deals. Again, this was not his authority to enter us into these accords. Yes, the president has foreign affairs powers, but those things also have to go through Congress and be approved by Congress. The president can't just say we're entering into something without getting congressional approval. Overall, he just slowly began increasing the president's power and that of the federal government 
while not really giving a care for the Tenth Amendment or states' rights to govern themselves. Though despite all this, I remained a loyal member of the Democratic Party, though not as blindly as I was before, throughout the 2016 primaries. But then it became very clear that the DNC and the Democrats were not willing to allow fair primaries to be conducted. They had chosen Hillary as their prize pony to win them the White House for another four years and defeat whomever the GOP put up against them, and I slowly lost what little faith I had left in the Democratic Party. This was only made worse when a few months later, then-candidate Trump was the nominee of the Republican Party, and the current, at the time, deputy director of the DNC was giving an interview on the British Broadcast Company. They began to list all the ways that Trump would destroy our country, and some of the stuff they listed off was completely inaccurate information, and he basically was saying that all Democrats should vote against him in the upcoming election. So me, being outspoken and opinionated on politics at this point, I decided to tweet him and just rebuke his talking points from the interview, thinking nothing of it. He had better things to do than reply or even look or acknowledge them. Well, to my surprise, he did actually respond. And after several tweets back and forth, it became very clear to me that the Democrats were just looking for people that would just blindly follow them still and do whatever they said, pretty much. So I responded to that effect and told him, essentially, that all you want are mindless sheep that will vote the way you tell them to, to which he responded something along the lines of, I don't think this party is for you. So... What did I do? I immediately logged on to my local election website and switched my affiliation to the Republican Party. In just a few short years, I no longer viewed conservatives as bad people that were simply stuck in the past, but instead cautious people that did not want to rush headfirst into decisions that would change the nation for the better or the worse. So my views had shifted from moderately left-wing to more centrist-leaning conservative views now. And I am not scared to say that I am a gay conservative who believes in the Constitution and supports President Trump. Most of the news media would tell you that all of us do not like President Trump, but there are a number of us that do support him, and what he says and think what he's doing for the country is good. At this point, I believe in some things from both sides of the aisle and disagree with things from both as well. But most importantly, I am a Republican because I believe in a smaller, weaker federal government and that we allow the states to exercise their sovereignty over the federal government. And it just seems like everyone has forgotten about the Tenth Amendment over the last few decades. Now I know we gave away a lot of rights to the federal government a long time ago, back during the Great Depression, because we needed the federal government to step up and create these relief projects that would bring us out of the Depression and save the country. But I think now we need to go back and allow the states to actually have control over themselves. Now, for those that don't know what the Tenth Amendment says, it says that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or the people. And I think people have also forgotten over the last few decades that the politicians are not the ones in control of the government at any level. This nation was founded on the principle that the people have the final say in what our government does, which is one of the reasons we hold elections at every level of government in this country. And the Tenth Amendment is basically just reminding people that if the Constitution does not specifically give powers to the state or to the government, those powers fall to the people. And it's time the people remember 
that we have the final say and we actually do run and control this country. Granted, we do it through elections, but still we have power and we have to remember that. That being said, yes, states do have a certain level of sovereignty over the federal government. The federal government is not supposed to tell the states what to do constantly. It should really only be in dire circumstances when the federal government steps up and says, look, you guys have dropped the ball on this. We're going to pick it up. And if you don't like it, tough. And then, of course, it goes to the Supreme Court and it gets ruled if it's constitutional or not. And that's a whole other story. A prime example of this would be the Biden campaign. We've heard Joe Biden say multiple times that if he was president, he would have issued a federal mask mandate. Well, for those that don't know, basically a federal mask mandate would be that the president of the United States signs an executive order basically ordering states to enforce mask laws and requiring their citizens to wear them and they have no choice in the matter. Now, granted, again, this would probably go to the courts and be ruled unconstitutional, in my opinion, because the states have the say and the sovereignty from the government. So in my opinion, the way President Trump has handled the pandemic has been much more in line with the way the federal government is supposed to run. We have a president that respects the state's rights and is not dictating to states. Now, he's been called a dictator multiple times, but if he was a dictator, he would not be giving states back power. He would be consolidating it to himself and the federal government. He's been doing the exact opposite, especially during this pandemic. He's issued guidelines and suggestions, but he's never come out right and said, states have to do it this way or they won't get federal money. And that's exactly what should happen. The federal government should not step in and tell the states how to run their respective government, least of all the president. Now, if a branch of the federal government was to do a policy or law like that, it would not come from the president, at least it not should. The president's job is to enforce the laws, not create them or legislate, which is why I don't agree with executive orders because they increase the power of the presidency when he should not be directly involved in policy. That is domestic policy, not foreign policy. If any of the three branches of the federal government would want to do some legislation on a mask mandate, for instance, it would be Congress, not the president or the Supreme Court that would do this. Congress, technically, is the House and the Senate, and they're the legislative branch. They are the ones that come up with the laws that govern the country as a whole, not the president and the executive branch. I'll say that again. The executive branch and the presidency are not the ones in the federal government that should be creating laws and policy. That power is relegated to Congress and the legislative branch, which is the House of Representatives and the Senate. Now, all that being said, I do not agree with every aspect of the Republican Party. I have not always agreed with their stance on same-sex marriage or their overly religious tendencies. Now, don't get me wrong, religion does have a place in this country, but there is a reason that the Founding Fathers sought to create the separation of church and state. They didn't want like what happened in Europe, where the Catholic Church basically controlled everything. They wanted to have it so that there was no national religion, no national church, and that the people were free to express their religious beliefs and faiths and practice them without fear of prosecution. But again, yes, you can be a person of faith and still be in politics. And yes, you can use your religious beliefs as your ethical compass. But it shouldn't be the only thing that governs your policies. 
Use your religious beliefs as the ethical compass, but don't say something can't be or has to be simply because of your religious beliefs. Now, I do agree with the party and their constant struggle to defend the Second Amendment, as it is the one amendment in the entire Constitution that keeps the other amendments safe. If we just look back at history, look at World War II and what Hitler did in Germany. He disarmed the people, and it made it that much easier for him to control the people. What do we think would happen if we allowed the government to come in and disarm our citizens? There would literally be nothing to stop them from taking away other rights from us. There would be no way to defend ourselves if they decided to send someone to take things from us. Oh, you have X amount of dollars or we're going to come and take half of it and give it to people that are less fortunate. There would literally be nothing to stop the government and those in power from coming in and just taking what you have and giving it to someone else or just taking it for themselves because there would be no way for you to defend yourself without the use of that firearm. I mean, granted, yes, you could try and, try and defend yourself some other way, but if you have 12 armed SWAT members or FBI or some other organization at your house or place of residency, granted, you versus 12 with one weapon, not going to go so well. But it'll go better than if you were completely disarmed, which, sadly, I feel is what the Democratic Party has been trying to do for the last 20 years. Now then, enough about my political journey and past. I'm going to get into some topics now that we're about 20 minutes in here. The first issue I would like to talk about is this issue of packing the Supreme Court. Now, from what I've gathered, it can mean two of one things. Originally, I thought packing the court was when the party in power puts enough people on the bench to keep the bench on their side, at least leaning their side, not always siding with them. But then upon further research, it turns out that under FDR, there was a proposal called the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937, which would essentially increase the number of seats on the Supreme Court. Now, the original Judiciary Act of 1869 is what set up the court as we know it now, one chief justice and eight associates. Well, during FDR's term, the Supreme Court struck down many of FDR's New Deal measures as being unconstitutional. So because the Constitution does not specifically state what the makeup of the court is, FDR's solution was to introduce this reform bill that would essentially allow them to increase the number of justices on the bench so that they could fill it and stack it with people that agreed with them so that they could get these deals passed through, which is what led the bill to be called the court packing plan. Um, it was opposed by members of both parties, even the president's own vice president opposed this bill. Now, again, he saw it that the constitution did not specifically say the makeup of the court, so that technically Congress was within their power to change the makeup. Now, had this been allowed to happen, it would have set a precedent that would have still affected us today because any time that a political party tried to pass things and then they get ruled unconstitutional, they could say, okay, we're going to add two, three, four more justices to the court when our party is in power. We're going to let them, the president then nominate four people that we know will side with us and we'll have a majority on the court. And this would have just led to the Supreme Court being another legislative body 
Now, justices have been accused of legislating from the bench before. For the most part, I think the Supreme Court has always done a decent job of staying within the confines of their job, which is to interpret the Constitution, apply it to laws that are being looked at and reviewed in the court system, and deciding if those laws are constitutional or not. And it just, to me, is a weak, cowardly move on Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the entire Biden campaign to simply say that they are not going to answer, or in Joe Biden's own words, they'll know my opinion on court packing when the election is over. Then Biden's own campaign manager, uh, Kate Bedingfield, during a TV interview, declined to answer anything more definitively, simply saying that I'm not going to play Donald Trump's game. So they're essentially trying to turn this on Trump and say that he's trying to trap them into giving an answer. It's really not that hard. You either say, yes, you're in favor of increasing the number of justices on the court to give your party the advantage, or you're not in favor of it because it would change the entire makeup of the court and the reason we have a Supreme Court at all. At one point earlier in the week, Biden was quoted as saying that voters don't deserve to know his opinion on court packing. I ask why, Joe? Why are you so scared to give us a straight answer? Is it because you can't control your own party, who you've claimed to be the leader of? Now, you were called out on the debate stage by the president for not being able to control the radical left of your own party. If you're the moderate candidate that you say you are, give us an answer. Say yes or no to this question. Personally, I think if he says yes, he loses a lot of undecided moderates. If he says no, he doesn't support it, he might lose a lot of his radical left-wing supporters that are in favor of this, and even a lot of members of his own party on the Hill are in favor of packing the court. But he will probably spend the next few weeks along with his campaign dodging the question and not giving us a full answer, which is probably why we do need another debate so that a moderator can press him and so that the president can press him on this issue. And I think the American people do deserve an answer, Mr. Biden. So I look forward to hearing an actual answer and not a continued dodging strategy on this problem. Now, another story that I've seen pop up quite often lately is talks about a second stimulus package or some kind of other stimulus bill. Now, I don't know how many other people like myself have not received their first stimulus check, but I am still waiting, and I did call the IRS and talk to them, and I was told they are mailing those checks until December 31st of this year. Now, I still haven't gotten mine, so I've got, what, two and a half months left to see if I'm going to get one? What happens if I don't get it at all? Luckily, I'm not a struggling single dad or a struggling family of two or three that really needed that money. I was going to use it to pay off some student loan debt and to invest a little of it. But the point we're here to talk about is that the second stimulus bill, much like the first one, seems to have all this extra junk thrown into it that doesn't address the main problem. The reason the first one got stalled and the reason the talks have been stalled is because the Democrats keep trying to throw things into these stimulus packages that have nothing to do with the coronavirus relief that they're designed for. They want to try and bail out the post office, something that's been failing for decades now. There's a reason that they're laying people off left and right, and it has nothing to do with President Trump trying to defund the post office to stop voters from being able to mail and vote. You want to talk about defunding something? Let's talk about the Democrats calling for the defunding of the police. What do they think is going to happen if we defund the police department? It's going to be anarchy in this country. No one's going to be able to do anything. 
then they are going to be calling up the militias to try and stop them, or they're going to call on the National Guard to round up our own people. But I digress. We're talking about stimulus checks here. I'm sure I'll talk about police brutality at some point. So this new stimulus check talks that were reignited by the president after he called them off initially and the markets suffered a decline, the Democrats have come back with a new stimulus proposal that includes benefits for illegal immigrants, part of which includes an extension of checks and protections from deportation of illegal immigrants that are in essential jobs. Now they're getting around this by saying it's part of the essential jobs. I thought essential jobs were healthcare workers and first responders. And last time I checked, I don't think many illegal immigrants are going to be first responders riding around in ambulances or EMT trucks or applying to be nurses and doctors at hospitals because one, you need a college education for that, postgraduate education, and you have to probably be a citizen if not be here on a special green card to work in a hospital. Typically, when we think of illegal immigrants or undocumented citizens coming over here and working, they're taking menial jobs that most Americans don't want, like working in a vegetable field or picking produce of some kind. We don't think of them as essential workers that are working in hospitals and as first responders. So for them to put that label on it, to me, seems like both a slap in the face to our actual essential workers and also the wrong word choice. They could have picked a number of other words besides essential, but they chose the wrong word here, and I think it'll also hurt them come November. should also be pointed out that they tried to also have this in the first stimulus package, which was inevitably rejected by the Republican Party. Now, yes, it does make sense that we're in the middle of a pandemic, so naturally, people are looking to the federal government or any level of government to give some kind of aid to people. But I don't think people realize that this really isn't a handout from the federal government. At some point, we're going to be paying back this money, so consider it like a cash advance on your paycheck. At some point down the road, either taxes are going to go up, or if you were supposed to get a tax return, you probably won't get any money because they're going to say, oh, we're just paying back the corona relief package. But yes, a stimulus bill would help many Americans. But in the grand scheme of things, does $1,200 really amount to much of anything other than a drop in the hat to most American families? My student loans alone every month are over $500. So... I would be using half of that to pay for my student loans if I didn't have a job that was still operating during the coronavirus. You factor in people's electrical bill or their heating bill or their water bill, that money is just going to be gone and they're still going to have all these bills piling up. It would make more sense as part of some relief package to invite the private sector to talks Invite the insurance companies, invite the banks, invite the auto insurance companies, invite mortgage companies, invite the companies that people owe money to, and simply ask these companies if they can just not charge people for four or five months or some extended period of time, and instead of furloughing it and making people pay it back at the end of the time period, just tack it on to the end of their bill. So if you get five months deferment on your bill just take it interest free and put it on the principal that you still owe so if you owe 10 grand 
and you don't have to pay for four months and say your four months worth was $600, you just take the 600, move it from now until March and you just put it on the end in that time frame and you just pay it back like you normally would. You just go back to paying your normal payments. I'm all for government assistance, but that really isn't the federal government's job, especially to bail out multi-billion dollar companies like the airlines or the banks or the auto industry or the cruise industry. These companies need to learn that they can't just willy-nilly spend their money. There's no reason that the average American person can save up a rainy day fund in the event that something happens and they lose their job or a pandemic hits or a natural disaster goes through and no one's at work. If the average American citizen can put money aside in the event of an emergency, there's no reason that these multi-billion dollar and trillion dollar companies can't put money aside to have in the event that they can't go to work for an extended period of time. It just blows my mind that for some reason, normal American citizens making $20,000 or even $100,000 can manage to put money aside so that they have a small reserve of cash for emergencies. But a big multi-billion dollar company can't do the same thing. How did the airlines not have money saved up? How did the cruise lines not have money saved up? How do banks, how do banks fail? How do they not have money to say, okay, we need to furlough X amount of workers, but we don't need federal money to help because we have money saved. You're a bank. You're multi-billion dollar cruise and airline companies. It just blows my mind that they can't save any money and have a cash reserve account. I have multiple cash reserve accounts and I'm only 28. Granted, I don't have a lot of money in there, but I have money come out of my paycheck every month and go into three or four different accounts so I have something in case something catastrophic happens. One of the first things I did last year when I got a full-time good-paying job was to open up a Scott Trade account and to open up a couple other banking accounts to have savings accounts and investing accounts. I started with a little bit of money, bought penny stocks, put some into mutual funds, started a 401k. How many 28-year-olds say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a 401k. I've seen my parents struggle with their 401ks, so I knew I needed to start one at a young age to save for retirement in 40-plus years. But I started with just a little bit of money. My 401k has tripled. My personal investing account has tripled. This is, again, all during a pandemic when people said it's impossible to make any money. I bought penny stocks. They'd go up. I would sell them, which allowed me to buy bigger companies. I bought gas companies. I bought tech companies. I bought pharmaceutical companies. When gas prices plummeted because no one was traveling, I bought gas company stocks. I bought oil stocks because it made sense to me. A 28-year-old who has no background in finance, it made sense to me to buy and invest in things that I knew would eventually come up. So I say again, and I ask you, if a 28-year-old who makes $14,000 a year is able to save money every month and invest a little bit of money every month, why can't the airline companies or the tourist industries or the cruise companies or the banks or the auto industry 
or the post office for that matter, save some kind of money for a rainy day fund. Another big story that came up in the news the last couple of weeks was that President Trump and several White House staffers and campaign members did test positive for the coronavirus. He has since been treated and is back at the White House and resumed his daily presidential duties. Even when he was sick with the virus, he still managed to work and do his presidential duties. Now he caused controversy when he sent a tweet that read, I will be leaving the great Walter Reed Medical Center today at 6.30 p.m. feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Now this has caused controversy because he has been accused of downplaying the virus again and telling people not to be scared of it and don't let it dominate your life. I don't see a problem with this. Why would you want to let something you can't control dominate your life? Has no one heard of the serenity prayer before? I mean, I've heard of it because I watch TV shows where they have AA meetings in them. I've seen it on people's plaques at houses. For those who don't know what the serenity prayer is, it reads as, God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, let me ask you, can you change the coronavirus? Can you change how you live your life to not live in fear of it? Yes, but you need to know the difference between the two. You can't control a microscopic organism that is airborne, so why let it control your life? Wear a mask or don't. Don't leave your house. Sanitize. Wash your hands. But don't let the virus dominate every fiber of your life. I have family members that refuse to let people in their homes, refuse to go out except for shopping when they need to. They come home and they instantly shower. Their relatives come over. They sit on opposite ends of a porch outside because they're so fearful that they're going to catch it. I just don't understand this mentality of, oh my God, there's a virus out there. I'm going to get sick and die. Every year we struggle with the flu in this country and people don't let it dominate their lives. And personally, the coronavirus is just the flu on steroids. So why are we letting it control our lives so much? I go to work every day. It's company policy to wear a mask, so I do. Now, my parents are older, so I try and be more safe and conscious of what I'm doing. So if I'm in a room with people, I leave it on, unless I'm eating and then I take it off. I try and keep distance between me and others. But the fact that the Democrats, the left, and the media has blown this one little segment of his tweet that said, simply don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. To me, that's sound advice. Don't let a virus dominate your life. Yes, you have to be mindful of it, but you don't have to let it consume every single aspect of your day-to-day -day life. And I think we've been very lucky in this country that we didn't have the strict type of lockdowns that they've had in other countries like New Zealand or Australia or Italy, where people were literally told, you cannot leave your home for X amount of weeks. You must stay inside. You cannot go anywhere. To me, that's just ridiculous. You can't expect people to stay in their homes and not leave for two weeks or longer. The virus is still going to be there after those two weeks are lifted. One point out in the Midwest, 
one state told people they couldn't go outside and cut their lawns. It's just so incredibly insane to think about that people were actually told that they can't leave their house and go in their own private property. When did we become these people? We're supposed to be the land of the free. We are supposed to have some level of freedom from the government. That was the whole point of what we fought for back in the 1700s. And the fact that the president of the United States is being berated for telling people not to be afraid of COVID and to not let it dominate their lives is just so insane to think about. I read another article recently about polling and how people are again not talking to pollsters as they did in 2016, which is leading to polls possibly not being accurate yet again. Now, this makes perfect sense to me. For four years plus now, people have been told if they support the president, they are a bigot, they're a racist, and they hate anything that's not American. They've been villainized and made into these evil people. So why then, if a pollster calls you, are you going to give them a straight answer? Why are you going to say, yes, I'm voting for President Trump? Or why would you put Trump Pence signs out? I'm sure everyone has seen the videos on Facebook or social media where people's Trump signs are vandalized or ripped up out of their lawns because the media has told people that the president is a bad person and he should not be trusted. You have a vice presidential candidate who has told people publicly multiple times that if there's a vaccine for COVID-19 or coronavirus, whichever you want to call it, and he is the one, he being the president, tells people to take this vaccine that it is safe. She has said, again, a current vice presidential nominee has said they will not take it and they will tell people to not take it because they simply do not trust the president. They do, however, trust the scientists. Well, let me ask you this. Who do you think's making the vaccine? Do you think Trump is donning a lab coat and going to research facilities and working with the vaccine? Do you honestly think that the president has anything to do with the manufacturing of these vaccines and their creations and research? The only thing he has done is to waive FDA regulations to make it easier to get a vaccine so we didn't have to wait three or four years for one. I remember back in April, people were panicking because doctors were telling them it would be at least two or three years before we had a vaccine that would be worth taking. And people panicked. They would watch these talk shows in the morning and panic because they were thinking, oh my God, we have to live with this for another three or four years until a vaccine is finalized and fully approved. And honestly, I think it would probably take longer than that if some of the roadblocks were not taken down. But back to my point, what makes Kamala Harris think that the president is in any way involved directly Granted, yes, he's involved indirectly, but how is he in any way involved directly in the creation of these vaccines? He's not. He's not going to labs and telling the drug manufacturers and the researchers what to put in them or what to look for. He's letting them do their jobs. He has just made their jobs slightly easier by somewhat loosening their hands of the red bureaucratic tape. 
easing FDA regulations on them and allowing them to hopefully come up with a safe vaccine slightly faster. But I'm sure even once they have a vaccine and they do trials, they're going to watch the trial subjects like a hawk. They're just not going to give them a vaccine and say, okay, go home. They're going to watch these people like a hawk. They're going to watch their vitals. They're going to record any small minute changes inside their bodies at all. They're not just going to give it to them and tell them to go home. The president was given experimental things for treatment as well as regular treatments. And I'm sure the White House physicians and staff that are medical are watching him like a hawk. They'd be watching him like a hawk even if he wasn't given anything experimental because he's the president and he's always watched like a hawk. But the fact that we have a vice presidential candidate who has said on numerous occasions, if the president of the United States is the one that comes out and says, this drug is safe, we can vaccinate people and get over this pandemic, that she would not take it and she would urge people to not take it. It just blows my mind. What is this person thinking? Who does she think made the damn thing? The scientist that she keeps saying, trust the science, trust the science. That's going to be the biggest talking point of the Biden campaign. Trust the science. That's all they say to half the questions. Then trust the scientist. They're the ones that made the goddamn vaccine, not the president. So if the scientists take make a vaccine and tell the president, Mr. President, this is our best shot of beating the coronavirus right now. He's going to, I guarantee it, go on live TV. Say, my fellow Americans, we finally have a vaccine that we think will stop the coronavirus in its tracks and get life back to normalcy. But she and Joe Biden will not take that vaccine and they will probably tell others to not take that vaccine. And then you now you have the issue of half the country does not want to take a vaccine simply because it has been developed under the Trump administration. In what world does that make any kind of sense? It would have been developed under whoever's administration it was. Because the scientists were not placed there by the president. They were not placed there by any person in a position of power in politics. They were put there because they went to school. And they're the experts, the experts that they keep telling us to listen to. So if they're the ones that tell the president the vaccine is safe and effective, I'm damn sure going to take it. And I'm sure there's plenty of other people that will take it too, regardless of who the one giving us the news is. On the subject of scientists, let's talk about Dr. Anthony Fauci for a little bit, who has criticized the Trump campaign for including him in a political ad that they are currently running saying he was taken out of context and that in his nearly five decades of public service, I'll say that again, nearly five decades of public service, that's almost 50 years he has been in service. He was appointed during Ronald Reagan, so that's all the way back in the 80s. His nearly five decades of public service, he's never endorsed a candidate, nor is he endorsing a candidate now. Okay, so yes, he was taken out of context. It happens all the time. No one's shocked about this. They're going to use whatever sound clips they can to make it sound like he's supporting the president. I just want to talk about the fact that for five decades, he has held the same position. For five decades, he has been at the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Now, again, he has been in that position since 1984. 
What have you been doing, Dr. Fauci? I don't think anybody knew who you were until March of this year. Where were you doing czars? Where were you during the swine flu? Where were you during the Ebola outbreak? What the hell have you been doing since 1984 to stop these pandemics from coming to the United States? Have you done anything? For nearly 50 years, you have been the head of our infectious disease. What have you been doing? You're supposed to create contingency plans and come up with ways to stop these things from coming here. We've had how many pandemics, or not pandemics, but how many diseases come into this country under your watch? What in the hell have you been doing for 50 years? You tell American people that they have to wear masks in public. Then you go to a ball game, sit close by people, don't wear your mask. What's with the double standards there, Dr. Fauci? Do we wear them or we don't wear them? CDC has flip-flopped on the issue, as has the World Health Organization. One week, it's masks don't do anything. The next week, it's masks are effective. Then the following week, it's, oh, they're effective, but not effective enough. And then, oh, only certain kinds of masks are effective. They're effective within a certain distance. They're only effective this and that. Which is it? I just would love to know what the hell you've been doing for the nearly five decades you've been in public service. Something tells me after this pandemic is put behind us, you'll probably be asked to tender your resignation. Because again, what the hell have you done for 50 years? We had the Zika virus outbreak under your watch. The Ebola outbreak also under your watch. N1H1 under your watch. The SARS virus under your watch. The AIDS outbreak also under your watch. So again, since 1984, what have you done in your position to help stop these things from coming to the United States, to prevent them from spreading like wildfire through the population? And why did no one know who you were until March of 2020? You just popped up and said, wear masks, everybody. I just don't understand. So I really don't care that you were taken out of context. I more care about what you've been doing. It just doesn't make any sense that you've been in since 1984, yet we've had all these issues and viruses and illnesses come to the United States when it's your job to try and prevent them. Granted, you're not as bad as the World Health Organization, who, when coronavirus was first discovered, literally said the words, there's nothing to worry about, only to 10 days later reverse their opinion and say, oh, wait, there is something to worry about. Now, on a slightly happier note, I guess you could say it. Um, President Trump's pick for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court, Amy Conan Barrett, appeared today in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who is the initial committee to hear opening remarks and whatnot from potential candidates uh, for the Supreme Court and other positions. She has been criticized for being too conservative, too religious, too anti-women's rights. So who is she? Well, she's a mother of seven. She has been a circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals Seventh Circuit. She was a professor at law at Notre Dame. Should also be pointed out that two of those seven children that she has are, were adopted after the Haiti earthquake in 2010. She is also a practicing Catholic. Oh no, we can't have a practicing Catholic serve on the federal bench. That will surely be terrible. Has the religion of any 
judge in the past mattered? Has their religion been a deciding factor in whether they're confirmed or not? No. It's only a factor now because President Trump is getting to nominate and probably getting a confirmed third pick on the Supreme Court, and the left and the Democrats are a little upset because their liberal lion, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, died under a constitutional conservative president who cares more about the country and the Constitution than I think any president since Ronald Reagan. So they've lost their liberal lion, and they're going to be replaced by a conservative Catholic judge who will interpret the Constitution in a conservative manner instead of a liberal manner. This is now his third nomination. His second nomination was accused of being a rapist, and that did not go over so well because their one witness, that there being the Democrats, one witness could not substantiate anything. So I would love to see what the Democrats are going to pull out this time to try and stop this confirmation. Unfortunately for them, we have a majority in the Senate, and we really don't need any Democrats. Now, there have been two Republican senators, one from Maine and one from Alaska, that said they do not approve of nominating a Supreme Court justice in the last year of a term of the president, so they are going to not vote with the party. Though I would hope that upon reflection and actually hearing Miss Barrett out, they might change their minds or they'll be enticed by party leaders to try and vote with the party. But either way, we still have a majority of Republicans. We can afford to lose three and still confirm a nominee. We can have a 50-50 split, in which case Vice President Pence would step in and vote, I would assume, in favor of the nomination because I doubt he would go against his president's nomination to the Supreme Court. And we'd still get our nomination. We can lose the presidential election in a few weeks and still get her confirmed to the court. We have until January, the middle of January. We basically have up until Inauguration Day to confirm this justice to the Supreme Court. I don't think we will lose the election in November. I think we will still win the election in November, given that polling data has been said to be skewed just like it was in 2016, because again, people aren't answering pollsters or they're not giving them correct answers to questions. Polling is still very close in key battleground states that the president needs. But the fact that people simply do not want this nominee because A, it's a Trump nominee, B, it's the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and C, she's a conservative Catholic. I don't think any of that matters, and I think it's the fact that she's going to interpret the Constitution as it was written, mainly because she was a member of something called the Federalist Society, which was a group of conservatives and libertarians alike that were advocating for a textualized and organized interpretation of the Constitution, which basically means that, yes, it's a living document, but they're going to interpret it the way it's written and not infer things that are not specifically in the text. And that's one of the reasons the Democrats don't like Donald Trump's nominees to the Supreme Court. He so far has nominated two constitutionalists who interpret the document as it was written and don't simply try to apply 21st century ideas to it 
they read the document as it was written granted yes it's a living document which means it's open to interpretation but while they do interpret it to apply it to do the cases they're hearing they adhere mostly to how the constitution was written so if they get a case on gun laws for for instance they're going to most likely vote against them because the constitution guarantees the american people the right to keep and bear arms if we're talking about abortion rights and a woman's right to choose if i had to guess they're probably going to err on the side of the constitution technically grants that child that has not been born yet rights and protections and killing them by aborting the pregnancy for means other than medical or rape is against the constitution now i am all for a woman's right to choose i believe in early term abortion so anything in the first trimester i believe in abortions if there's a severe medical issue with the child or the child and the mother and they would both die i believe in abortion if the mother was raped and they don't want to keep a memory around of that tragic event don't however agree with the infocide which is when we can quote unquote abort an abortion after the child's been born how does that work that's murder child is no longer in the mother's womb technically that is murder you're literally allowing a mother to change their mind and kill their child do not think that's going to have psychological ramifications on the mother at some point but yes it's a woman's right to choose about abortions personally again early term abortions to me are one thing but the bottom line is it's a woman's right to choose you can't you shouldn't be telling someone what they can and can't do with their body people get pissed all the time about that when a work says oh you can't come to work if you have a tattoo you can't come to work if you have a piercing hell people have been told they can't come to work because they're pregnant but i digress we're talking about amy coning barrett right now who i think will make a wonderful addition to the court I don't think she'll be like Kavanaugh and in Gorsuch in the stance that they haven't always voted with the president on certain issues. I feel like she might be the kind of person that will vote more in favor of true conservative values and her faith of course will play a big role in her decisions if she is and when she is confirmed to the court. But the court is designed so that it's there for a while there's a reason we have lifetime appointments ginsburg could have retired under obama when he had control of the senate but she chose not to she wanted to stay on the court and work i applaud her for that i'm not trying to diminish her accomplishments at all i'm just saying the left can't be mad that trump gets to nominate a third supreme court pick she literally could have retired during the democratic president but she chose not to and there's nothing that says one of trump's picks won't retire or god forbid drop dead on the court anytime soon but the court was designed to outlast the presidents that nominate them and the senate that confirms the nominees that's why people say these picks will forever change the court for generations which is one of the reasons i think trump is picking younger judges but people change. People don't stay set in their ways forever. Look at me. I started out as a democratic liberal and now I am a moderate conservative 
who believes in the Constitution above all else. There's nothing that says 10, 15 years down the road that the people Trump has put on the bench are still going to think exactly the same way they think now. They might get a case similar to something they had in the past, and they might rule differently on it. I remember when Brett Kavanaugh was at his confirmation hearing, he was asked questions about Roe v. Wade, and he came right out and said he has no desire to overturn and disagree with the court of the past. So why is the left so scared that the president is nominating another conservative constitutionalist judge? We are governed by the freaking constitution for Christ's sakes. It just doesn't make any sense. They're so scared of the constitution because they don't like it. They want to hold the power. It, I just don't understand how these people keep getting reelected when they literally spit in the Founding Fathers, American history, and the Constitution. But we are out of time for this first episode of Capital Fatigue. I want to say thank you all for listening to this. I hope it's received well and everyone enjoys it so that I can continue to do more of these in the future. This will be uploaded to three platforms, YouTube, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, so that I can get the most reception possible, so I can get the most feedback possible on what needs to be changed and tweaked. But for now, that is the end of the episode. I will see you next week. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and God bless the United States of America.